If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8. Jeremiah means the Lord exalts. But don't be confused. The Lord does not exalt sinners. The Lord exalts his children, those that have repented and come back to him. And that's the point of Jeremiah. As we open Jeremiah, Israel is under God's condemnation, right? Under great judgment because they've turned away. But by the end of Jeremiah, they will have come back to God and God will again exalt Jerusalem and send our Messiah Yeshua to sit on the throne in Jerusalem to rule and reign for how long? Forever and ever without end. Amen. In some translations, as people are turning, in Matthew 24, the Messiah answers the questions that the apostles ask. And the last one is, in the end of the world. But it's not world, it's the end of the age. So, sometimes we have to watch our translations. What is the end of the age? That means when we come through this age and entered into the messianic kingdom, the reign of Messiah on earth. So what they were really wanting to know is, are you going to start your kingdom on earth now? Are we going to overthrow Rome? Are we going to rise up and revolt? And the Lord said, no, uh-uh. It's going to be a while. So, now that we found it, Jeremiah chapter 8. Oh, bye, mine, bye. In verses 4 and 5. The Lord cries out, why will they not repent? Because the Lord wants to forgive them. He wants to restore them. He wants to bless them. But can he do that if they will not repent? No. Why not? Because what did God say in Deuteronomy 28.36? If they turn away from turn to idols, they will go into captivity. Can God change his mind and say, well, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. No. And be glad that he can't. Because as Doc said the other week, what if God decided he's only going to save blonde people? Well, most of us here are in real trouble then, right? But God does not change. Somebody give me a scripture. God does not change. Psalm 89, 34. Psalm 89, 34 is a good one. Okay. Could have also said in numbers, and there's several, but here we go. So in verse 6, verse 6, it says, I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horses rushed into the battle. So what is the answer to God calling out, why won't the people repent? Will you repent and turn to me so I can save you, so I can bless you, so I can deliver you? The answer is no. And the heart is, look at that third clause, no man repented of his wickedness. Why not? Because they love their sin. They want to walk in sin and have God accept them anyway. And it's not going to work that way. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I've heard in the New Testament you can continue in sin and God loves it. But what does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 12. 
verses 20 and 21. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth made up of believers that come out of the Gentile world. In verse 20 says, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish. By that he means forgiven, obedient, repentant. And that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. He says, oh, if you're in that, if you're in an unrepentant state, I'm going to whip you, boy. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Does this sound like once you walk down the aisle and make a confession of faith, you can go back to your sin? It doesn't sound that way at all, does it? What does the Apostle Paul mean of the uncleanness? What kind of things are unclean? Unclean foods, right? Idolatry. Things associated with idolatry. That's all kinds of things like that. Fornication, that's sex before or outside of marriage. Lewdness. Uh, why would the Apostle Paul worry that they would not have repented of all these things? Because remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man having sexual relations with his father's wife. And the congregation was saying, hey, that's nice. And Paul said, no, that's not nice. That's not right. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, if you're committing these sins, don't think you're saved. Right? And then what he said, go to 1 Corinthians 6. Instead of paraphrasing, we'll just go read it. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. It's in chapter 5 that it says, It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, what's another term for unrighteous? The lawless, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Why would he say that? Were there people out there trying to deceive them? Yeah. It says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Just making your notes, also look at Galatians 5, 19 to 21, because it's not the only church, Paul says, if you're committing these sins... Don't think that you're saved. You're just kidding yourself. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Let me interject here. Go ahead and interject, Bob. The list that he's given here yep. is not an exceptional list. It's not an exhaustive one either. But also the fact is these people had come out of a lifestyle similar to what America is in today. Yep. And it was not unusual at all for them to be involved in these sins before they turned to the Lord. Right. And then Paul is saying, 
whoa, wait a minute. Who gave you permission to go back? God does not want you living in that mess. Right. Can you and, just say Ephesians 4.17? Yeah. And, yeah. and the message today to believers around, especially America, is God gets you. You just keep on doing these things. It's okay. God really gets you. He understands. Yeah, that's the message, unfortunately, out there, but it's not a true message. It's a deceitful message. A deceitful message. But I've always thought of this list as being, oh my gosh, I would never, I don't even want to hear this word. Oh, I can't imagine this. Oh, this is awful. But no, that's just what it was. It's like what it is now. Yeah. Yeah, I've been teaching this same stuff for 30 years or more, and 30 years ago, people were saying America would never be like that. You'd almost blush if you read this out loud 30 years ago. Yeah. So Matthew 11, verse 20. Referring to Messiah. It says, are we there? Not there yet. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Referring to Messiah, it says, Then he, that's Messiah, Yeshua, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Where are Chorazim and Bethsaida today? They've just recently think that they might have found where they used to be. After 2,000 years of looking. Tyre and Sidon, that's the area which we call today Lebanon, from which Ahab married Jezebel and brought Baal worship down into the land. Verse 22, but I see it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So when the Lord says, repent, there's an or else. And the or else is serious. Because we mentioned Ephesians 4.17, let's turn over there and look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Because I mentioned it, instead of just mentioning it, we're going to look at it. I'd like you to put your eyes on the words. And see that I'm not making stuff up. Wouldn't it be nice if none of you guys had Bibles and I could just make stuff up and teach you whatever I want? No, it wouldn't be nice. Yeah. Ephesians 4.17 This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or perversement of their mind so once you get saved can you continue to walk in the same sins that everybody else around you is walking in the answer is no so what do you do verse 22 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust which means stop sinning like you used to and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, again, is the opposite of what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. 
So lawlessness is breaking the commandments of God. So what is true righteousness? It's walking in the commandments of God. And holiness, does Hebrews say, without holiness, no one will what? No one will see God. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is written 30 years after the other apostles are dead. A lot of the original Jewish leadership of the congregations have died off. And Gentiles are now leading a lot of the congregations saying, why do we want to follow those Jewish rules? Those Jewish commandments. Did God give the commandments to the Jews? How many times does God use the word Jew or Jewish in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? Not once. Not once. Why? Because who are the commandments for? Everybody. Can you give me a verse that says it's for Jew and Gentile alike? Ah, keep your finger in Revelation. Don't lose it. Go back to Numbers 15. I could turn to a dozen places. But Numbers 15 is pretty clear to me. Numbers chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Numbers chapter 15. Verses 15 and 16. You'll get there. Numbers chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly. What's the assembly? That's Israel. And for the stranger... That's the non-Israelite that's coming to the land. This is the Gentile who no longer wants to worship pagan gods, but wants to worship the Lord our God. For the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. How long is that ordinance for? Forever. forever. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So when a Gentile gets saved and gets grafted in, which commandments apply? All. All of them. Exactly. But that's Old Testament. Come on. Give me something in the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Who wrote 1 Corinthians? Paul. Paul did. Chapter 7, right after that list of sins we read in chapter 6, that if you're doing these, you're not on the road to heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. doesn't matter if you're born a Jew or a Gentile. What does matter? Keeping the commandments of God. But that's in the New Testament. Duh. Does our faith make the law void? 
No, give me a verse. Romans 3.31. You're close. Romans 3.31. Who wrote Romans 3.31? Paul did. I grew up being told Paul told us not to follow the law, but you know what? Once you start reading, that's not what he said at all. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Answer, Romans 3.31. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Answer, meijanoito in Greek, certainly not in English, God forbid in the King James. No way, Jose, in my personal translation. On the contrary, we establish the law. That is, your faith is what makes the law firm, solid, and important. Okay, with that in mind, let's go back to Revelation where you kept your finger. Or your neighbor's finger. I told you to keep a finger. I did. I remembered. Turn blue on it. Uh, okay, Revelation 2. Rewind the tape. I'm sure I did. <laughs> Revelation 2. These are seven letters to seven churches. People that say they have been saved by faith. That they are following the Lord. And what word do we keep seeing? Let's look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. He's talking to the churches, those who claim to be the children of God, and saying, you have got to repent. Is that the first time we see the word repent in chapter 2? Nope. Look at verse 5, Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What's we, first works? First works. When they were first saved and they were under the leadership of the Apostle John, they followed God's commandments out of the love of their heart. They were so faithful. John's gone now. And now, the love of God is what? First John chapter 5 is to keep his commandments. Yeah, they're not seeing the need so much. And isn't there a scripture that says something like, believing on Yeshua is the, is the work of God? Something similar to similar that, but it's not similar enough that I can I recall that. I twisted it and I was trying to say it. My tongue got tangled. Okay. But is that the only time? Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. We looked at verse 5. In verse 7 it says, To him who overcomes. Verse 7, to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes in verse 17. Why do we keep seeing words like this? Where do we find out who an overcomer is? That's 1 John chapter 5. So let's go to 1 John chapter 5. What about 
Hidden man is referring to the manna that the book of Hebrews says is in the Ark of the Covenant. There's a pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant to be shared amongst the, the believers after their rapture and resurrected. 1 John chapter 5 is where we define what does it mean to be an overcomer. And let's read verses 1 through 5 and you'll see what all it encompasses. It says, Whoever believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And the word loves there is a present participle. It's an ongoing love. That's why in Revelation 2, he's saying you've lost your first love. The love needs to continue. Verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes Yeshua is the Son of God? So from faith comes love, from love comes obedience. And in Revelation 2, there in verse 5, Messiah is saying the love is starting to wear off, if you will. Let's go to Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. There are many, many ministries out there today saying that repentance doesn't mean stop sinning. It just means say that Jesus is Lord. But if we look at Revelation 9 verses 20 and 21, it says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor talk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So what does that tell us? What is repentance? Stop, Stop sinning. And the word repent or repentance appears how many times in the New Testament itself? 58. 58. 58 times. If God says something once, it's important. What if he says it 58 times? You think he means it? He does. Let's go on to Revelation 16. Again? Of course. The verse I was looking for is John 6, 29. John 6, 29 is the verse you were looking for. Where Yeshua says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So in uh, Revelation, when they say you've left your first works, this is Jesus speaking, saying, this is the work of God that you believe in him, that's me, whom he sent. Yep. And do you suppose that word believe is a one-time event? No, it's a verb. It's a continuing action, isn't it? And if you lag in your belief and lag in your faithfulness, you're in the danger there that Revelation is referring to is that you know you started the race so well, but what are you doing getting tired? Yeah, how many times has Paul used the analogy of a race? You've got to finish the race. Yeah. Yep. 
Go to Revelation 16, verses 9 and 11. 9 and 11. When we come to Revelation 16, it's the end of the tribulation period and the bowls of wrath of God are being poured out without measure. And Romans 16, 9 says, And the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. First 10 says, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. That Greek word there is ergon. But they have a chance to repent. They have a chance to repent and they refuse. Why? Because they love their sin too much. Now are the 144,000 running around the earth at this point? The 144,000 are preaching the gospel around the world at this point. And most of the men are simply saying, no way. Right. This is the latter three and a half. Right. This is in the latter three and a half. The church is gone after Revelation 6? Four. Four. Thank you. Yeah. Revelation 6 begins the seven-year tribulation period. Church is gone in four. Oh, my. How can we do that? I don't know. So let's go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Chapter 6. I want to look at the end of the verse. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6. Where we started from, the end of the verse. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course. As the horse rushes into the battle. What does it mean everyone turned to his own course? They just kept doing their own thing. Doing their own thing. Instead of going the way that God commanded, they said, no, I'll do it my way. Which might have been a good song, but it doesn't work out so well in eternity. Go to the book of Isaiah chapter 53. I like the way Isaiah 53 puts it. All we like sheep... Have gone astray. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Whoops, I have some chats out here while you guys are turning. Yep, Susie's right. John 10, 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's another picture of the grafting in. Romans 11 uses the wild olive tree into the cultivated tree. John 10, 16 uses one flock. If one flock is following one shepherd, how many ways can they go? Just one way. And Susie also says, Revelation 2, in addressing Thyatira, is the letter referring to a specific professing church today that we can identify? No, they're long gone. Long gone. Those churches didn't repent, and they've gone out of history. Let's look also at Hosea chapter 10. The word Hosea means salvation, just as Yeshua does. It comes from the same root. Hosea chapter 10. 
Hosea chapter 10. Hosea comes from the word salvation, as does the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation. You guys know that, right? That it's a participle, right? Which means continuing action. It's a passive participle, which tells us we can't save ourselves. And to get from the verb yesha, which is save, to Yeshua, which is salvation, you have to add the Hebrew letter Vav, which is a letter that stands for man. So it teaches that God came in the form of a man to save those who can't save themselves. And he saves yesterday, today, and forever. That's why I really like that name. Hosea chapter 10, are we there yet? Not yet. Close. Verse 13. Rachel says also Judges 21-25 could also go along with Jeremiah 8-6. Okay, we'll look at that one in a second. Hosea chapter 10 verse 13 says, You have plowed wickedness. What's that mean? It means you planted wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. Iniquity is lawlessness. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. If you put your faith in your way instead of going God's way, you're going to reap what? Lawlessness. Not going to go well. So Rachel says, let's also look at Judges 21-25. So let's look at Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yep, the scriptures say that in several places. Is it ever said the good way? No, it is not. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 8. We're up to verse 7. Even... The stork in the heavens. Is that heavens as in the throne of God? No, the air that we breathe is the first heaven. So that's where the storks fly. Knows her appointed times. That word appointed times is Moedim. It's the appointed times like in Leviticus chapter 23. So they're telling us the animals recognize the appointed times before you and I do. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow. The swift is a type of bird, not that it's a swift turtle dove. Observe the time of their coming, that is, of their migrations. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. They say that because the false prophets keep telling them, oh, God's not going to judge us. He's not going to let Jerusalem fall. He never let the temple be destroyed. What's Jeremiah telling them? Yep. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Yeah, there will be a crop. So the animals are more aware of God's appointed times than we are sometimes. Let's not be like that. I still laugh every time 
I see one of those preachers on YouTube that refer back to Leviticus 23 and say those have absolutely nothing to do with the church. Messiah died at Passover, was buried in leavened bread, rose at first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came at Shavuot, but they have nothing whatsoever to do with the church. Yes, they do. We'll find out shortly. But verse 8. How can you say, talking to the children of Israel down in Judah, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. They say, we have the Torah. There's a copy of the Torah scroll sent right over there. Wow, doesn't that mean something? The answer is no. If you don't read it, if you don't study, if you don't do it, then what is it? It's not just know it. It's do it. it. says, how can you say we're wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The priests and the prophets were teaching the people wrong. And let's see what God has to say. Let's go to Psalm 110. No, let's go to Psalm 111. We'll go there first. Psalm 111. Verse 10. There isn't a verse 10. Oh, maybe if I turn the page. It's just on the next page. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is important. Psalm 111. You're welcome. And I said verse 10, but... As is so often the case, I want to give us some context. So we'll actually start reading in verse 7. The works of his hands are verity. What's verity? Truth. Truth and justice. All his precepts, that is his various commandments, are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. God's precepts, what? Stand fast for how long? Forever and ever. And are done in truth and uprightness. So not only do they stand forever and ever, but it says, and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So in Jeremiah they're saying, hey, we got a copy of the Torah scroll. And God's saying, well, would you read it and do it? They're going, oh, no, 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 that's, that's too much. Do you ever hear that from people? Oh, oh, keeping God's commandments, that's too much to ask. I just can't understand yeah, just too much. Go to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Remember we read in Psalm 111, 10, that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. And here in verse 7 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Yeah. 
So the people that God's speaking to in Jeremiah say, we have the law, but they don't do the law because what? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to be told that they need to change their ways. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Don't we have an attitude in this country that nobody can tell me what to do? I'll do whatever I want. That's not a godly attitude. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Does that make you think of Hosea chapter 4? My people perish for lack of what? Knowledge. So when it says the knowledge of the Holy One, what does that mean? Let's look at Hosea chapter 4. It explains it. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. Why don't they have the knowledge? They rejected it. That's a conscious choice. It says, I'll also reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law, the Torah of your God. I also will forget your children. If you have forgotten the law of your God, that's Deuteronomy 8.11. If you've forgotten the law of God, you have forgotten God. You've forsaken him. So also at Daniel chapter 12, since we're here in Hosea and Daniel's nearby. Daniel chapter 12 goes right along with some questions I was asked beforehand about Matthew chapter 5 verse 19 when does Daniel chapter 12 takes place is it the middle of the tribulation period Daniel 12 and Revelation 12 take place at the same time 12.1 says, at that time, that's the time of the tribulation period, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. We call that Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, such as never was since there was a nation. But we're here for verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If the opposite of righteousness is lawlessness, then it says those who turn many away from lawlessness to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Does that sound like a beautiful promise from the Lord? Indeed. Let's go back to Psalm 19. 
Psalm 19, verse 7. There's a bad word in here we got to fix if you haven't done it already. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord, that's the Torah, is perfect. That word is tamim, which means without spot or blemish. Converting the soul. It's not converting. The word is restoring. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord, which are his commandments, is sure. Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you see a theme? If so, let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 119. It is the longest book of the Bible. Is that right? Yeah. And what's it all about? Every bit of it. How important the commandments of God are. The law, the Torah. How important it is. Psalm 119, verse 98. We'll start in 97 for context, which says, Oh, how I love your law, your Torah. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. For they, that is the commandments, are ever with me. And turn back a page to verse 89. This one just caught my eye as we were flipping to 119 verse 98. But verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. What does it mean, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven? This, does this mean that God's going to change his mind and throw out everything he told him before? It doesn't, does it? In the New Testament it says we're supposed to learn from what was written before. In the entire Old Testament, what happens every time someone, Jewish or not, turns away from God into sin? Judgment falls, right? When they repent, they get restored. They turn back to sin, they get judged. From that, should we learn that when we come to the New Testament that it's now okay with God if we walk in sin? If we do, then we didn't learn the lessons. I used to say, Israel's the only nation lucky enough to have all its sins recorded for everybody to see. Aren't you glad our names are not in there? Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 9. The wise men, that is those that believe they are wise, look at verse 8. 
How can you say we are wise? So they're wise in their own opinion. But verse 9 says the wise men are ashamed, which means their wisdom fails because they're wrong. They are dismayed and taken because they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Yep, if you've rejected the word of God, what wisdom do you have? Not much much that's worth anything in eternity. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Start in verse 20. Start in verse 20. And we'll go through 24. The soul who sins shall what? Die. Die. Does that sound like the book of Romans? The wages of sin is death? Yeah. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son, which means the one who sins bears the guilt. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. That is, you can't share it. You can't give your righteousness to somebody else. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, what do you call that? That's repentance, right? He shall surely live. He shall not die. Because what happens when you repent? God does what? He forgives. Verse 22, none of the transgressions which he's committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, that word means lawlessness, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Oh. How many of you have read the Left Behind series? Whole series. Yeah. Even the kids. The volume I just finished had something in it that just keeps me awake at night. Somebody who's saved and has the mark of God on his forehead, as Revelation chapter 7 describes, has just taken the mark of the beast. And they're saying, that's okay. Once saved, always saved. Since he had the seal of God taking the mark, that's not a problem. What does the scripture say happens if you take the mark? You're lost, gone, irredeemable. So let's remember, those are not the Bible. They're good books, but they're not Bible. 
Continuing the thoughts of, cha- of chapter 8, verse 9, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First, first Samuel chapter 15, verses 23 and 26. These words are spoken to King Saul by God through the prophet Samuel. First Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is as the sin of a witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Actually, that is as, it's in italics in my version. Mm-hmm. It's like rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. That means same thing. Yeah. Yep. So when Saul refused to obey the commandment of God, he said it's the same as if you committed iniquity or idolatry. When you rejected the word of the Lord, you can't say, but I didn't do these other sins. Mm. What does the scripture say about if you break in one commandment? Yeah, we broke them all. Why does it say that? Because the wages of sin is death. death. You break one, the wages of sin is death. So, and the fourth commandment doesn't count. So let's go down to verse 26. I hope the microphone's not picking you up. Okay. Verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. Samuel's the prophet, Saul's the king. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul is trying to force Samuel to go back and, and continue bringing the word of the Lord to Saul. And, and Samuel says, no, you're over. You're done. Why? For simply rejecting the word of the Lord? That's not a simply. That's a bad thing. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. For those of you who are new, have you, have you studied 1 Kings chapter 13? Ah, maybe we'll do that in a minute. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root, who's the they, the wicked, will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because you have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
When you say, God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it my way. Is God pleased? And says, oh, what an industrious child. No, quite the opposite. Let's go back to 1 Kings 13. Most of you know it, but not all. So let's just refresh ourselves what happens. First Kings chapter 13. First Kings chapter 13. First Kings chapter 13 it comes right after chapter 12. I know. I'm bad. Are we there? 1 Kings 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God, he's a prophet, went from Judah to Bethel, that's in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's right after the split of the nation into two kingdoms, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. By the word of the Lord, so God sent him. And Jeroboam, he's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, stood by the altar to burn incense. He's going to burn incense to whom? To the golden calf that he put up. Uh huh. Then he cried out against the altar. This is the prophet who does. By the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold a child, Josiah by name. He's not going to be born for 400 years. But God already tells him what the name will be right here. Shall be born to the house of David. And he was. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard this saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Why does he want to arrest him? He doesn't want him stirring up trouble. Because he doesn't want to stir up trouble because Jeroboam is leading the people in idolatry. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so they could not pull it back to himself. Immediately, as he says, arrest the man, his arm withers. The altar also is split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, just like the prophet had said. According to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then a king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, not my God, but your God. And pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as before. Is this going to cause Jeroboam to worship the Lord? No, it's not. Verse 7, and the king said to the man of God, here's the important part. Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So does the prophet know that God gave him a commandment? Yes. Does he know what the commandment was and what it meant? Yes, he does. 
Verse 10, so he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Verse 7, now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. What kind of a prophet's going to dwell at Bethel? A false prophet. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also had their, told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. What words? That I cannot go back with you and eat. And their father said to him, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God who went who came from Judah. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So he saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. What's that mean? Yes, that's me. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Does that violate the commandment God gave to the prophet? Yes. So he says, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. Does the prophet still understand the commandment? He still does. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Verse 18. The other guy, the false prophet, he said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Open Perrin, he was lying to him. So this new guy says, Hey, I got a word from the Lord that says, Forget what God commanded you. He changed his mind. Let's see what happens. Verse 19, So he went back with them and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. So the false prophet gets a word from the Lord now. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. But you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Which means you're not going to live to go home. Verse 23. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. So the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah was slain by the lion at the commandment of the Lord because he believed that God would change his commandment. Is that an important lesson to learn? So when people say, well, yeah, God said, remember the Sabbath day, but then he changed his mind. And now it's Sunday. Yeah, I know God said don't eat pigs, but that was in the Old Testament, and now he likes you to eat pigs. That's like the false prophet telling the prophet from the southern kingdom, God told me that you need to change your ways and not follow his commandments. In Psalm 89.34, it says what? Let's go look. I want you to look at the words. If you've never read it,
I want you to read the t-shirt Becky made for me. Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. When God says, thou shalt not murder, is he then going to change his mind and say murder is okay? No. If he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy several times, Will he then say, oh, I was just kidding. Let's keep Sunday instead so we make the sun god worshipers feel good. He's not going to do that. When was the commandment done away with and replaced with Sunday? Was it the Council of Laodicea in the 4th century by the Catholic Church in Canon 29? I remember having a discussion with my pastor at a Baptist church in Prattville, Alabama many years ago. And I said, where in the scripture does it say that the Sabbath has been done away with and we're supposed to keep Sunday instead? His answer was, well, of course it's not in there. You know that. But I believe that the apostles must have changed it after the Bible was written. What man has the authority to change God's commandments? Nobody. That's the lesson of 1 Kings chapter 13. I'm sorry, I digress. I'm getting preachy. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 8. But it's a lesson that I, as we approach the day of the Lord, I wish people would understand that concept a little better. Not you guys, of course. Other people. Verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 10. Therefore, oh, what's therefore? What's that mean? Because of what I just said. Because they say we will not follow the law of God. We've rejected his word. Therefore, I will give their wives to others. And their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Why are the prophets and the priests dealing falsely? It's because of covetousness, because they want money. What does it say in Malachi 3? Let's go up to Malachi 3 and check. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament before we get to Matthew. I wish they hadn't called it the Old Testament. It makes people think something it's not. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance 
that we've walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. Do you understand what those words mean? It means if we were to keep God's commandments, what do we get out of it? How does that put money in my pocket? How does that make me wealthy and powerful? That's, it's interesting that they use the word mourners because God commands joy. Yeah. That is crazy. You know, that is so crazy that the people are saying, you know, we're trying to make you happy by mourning. And God said, I've commanded you to be joyful. Yeah. Absolutely true. So, staying in Malachi for a minute. We just read verses 13 and 14. Let's go back to verse 7 of chapter 2. Staying in Malachi, though. Malachi 2, verses 7 and 8. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. Which knowledge are we talking about? You only have to look up to verse 6. Now we're talking about the Torah. And people should seek the law from his mouth, for he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way and have caused many to stumble at the law. Why did they make them stumble at the law? Oh, boy. Because in chapter 3 it said what? What profit is it to me? To teach the law of God and to follow it. So how were they profiting? They were profiting by teaching people to walk in sin. Makes me think of the Catholic Church back when they sold indulgences. Do you remember indulgences? Indulgence was permission to sin. You pay the priest up front. And then God doesn't care when you commit the sin. It's okay. I believe they still sell them. I'm hoping not. I bet not. And let's go to the book of Micah, since we're back here near the end of the Old Testament. Ah, okay. There went the pencil. Malachi. We were just in Malachi. What am I thinking of? Let's go to Micah instead. Micah chapter 3. The other M word. We were in Malachi. Micah helps us understand Malachi. That's why I wanted to go to Micah next. It helps us understand what it means by what profit is there to me. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. In fact, I want to make a note of that up here. Micah 3, 11. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. So you want a prophecy that says everything's going to be fine? That'll be five bucks, please. You want me to tell you a commandment doesn't apply? That'll be ten bucks. 
What profit is there in actually following the commandments when we can make money off having people not follow them? Let's go back to our text in Jeremiah chapter 8. We're up to verse 11. For they have, they being the false prophets, they have healed the herd of the daughter of my people slightly. The word means superficially. Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, when the people started feeling like, hey, hey, we're about to be slaughtered, the false prophets and the priests would say, oh, no, 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 uh-uh. There's going to be nothing but peace. Nothing to worry about. It's what it means. They've healed the hurt of the daughter of my people superficially. Made them feel at ease. And therefore they continue to put money into the pockets of the prophets and the priests. Let's go to Jeremiah 6.14 and remind us what the false prophets are teaching. Jeremiah 6.14. It reads just exactly the same. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly or superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But surely that wouldn't happen today, right? Before we go to 1 Thessalonians 5... Let's stop in Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel 13. Mm -hmm. Oops, I got a chat out here. Let me see what it is. It says, aren't there 613 commandments? Do you have a list of these? The answer to both is yes, but... The list was compiled by Rambam, and it's very repetitive. Some commandments in the Bible he makes into four or five. But yes, I do have a list. I'll see if I've got something I can send out electronically. We were going to Ezekiel, right? Chapter 13, starting in verse 8. This is again about the foolish prophets, the false prophets. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it's actually my Lord, the Lord. Because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, Talking about they're not coming into eternal life. Nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And one builds a wall and they plaster with untempered mortar. Say to those who plaster with untempered mortar that it will fall. 
There will be flooding rain, and you, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, Where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger, and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall you've plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground. So this foundation will be uncovered. It will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I accomplish my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered with untempered mortar. And I'll say to you, the wall is no more nor those who tempered it. That is, the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord God. So God's true prophets are prophesying judgment is coming and the false prophets are going, no, no, peace, peace. There will be no problems. And if we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to find the same thing will happen in the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the New Testament, all the T's are together in alphabetical order. So Thessalonians will come before Timothy and Titus. Chapter 5, verse 3. In fact, we're going to start in verse 1 for context, understanding that Paul has just taught the rapture and the resurrection. Verse 1 says, but concerning the times and the seasons, referring to the appointed times of the Lord that teach the first and second coming from Leviticus chapter 23. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. That is because Paul's taught them to keep the festivals, the appointed times. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So generally when I start talking in times to somebody that's not a part of our group, they say, whoa, whoa, no man knows the day or the hour. It comes like a thief in the night. Well, on some people it comes like a thief in the night. But those who understand the feasts and festivals of Leviticus 23, God's appointed times, we know what's coming. Okay, back to Jeremiah chapter 8, we're up to verse 12. The false prophets are saying to the people, Peace, peace, meaning God will not send any judgment against you. So God, in verse 12, is going to say, let's examine that. Were they ashamed when they had committed an abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor do they know how to blush. If they're not ashamed of the sin... Are they going to repent of it? The answer is no. They're not ashamed because they think they didn't do anything wrong. Nor do they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment they shall be cast down, 
says the Lord. They didn't repent. God sent him prophet after prophet, and they didn't repent. Did we read in Revelation 16, it's going to happen again? Is it not Ecclesiastes that says what's happened before will happen again? There's nothing new under the sun? Yeah. So verse 13 says, I will surely consume them. Actually, it means to take them away. It doesn't mean he's going to eat them for supper. He's going to send them into captivity like he said he was going to, says the Lord. No grape shall be on the vine. Uh-oh. God forbids when Israel goes through and harvests the field for them to glean. There has to be some fruit on the vine and wheat in the field for the poor and the widows and the orphans. When he says no grapes on the vine, that means God is going to completely glean the children of Israel. Not one will be left. Nor figs on the tree, and the leaves shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. I don't want to give away the end, but what happens is there have been two waves of the Babylonian captivity so far. God said when Babylon comes, go with them. Don't put up a fight, go with them. The third group that's still in Jerusalem is saying, we're not going, you can't make us, and you're not going to destroy the city or the temple, and we're going to be just fine. They will, when they find out otherwise, they're going to flee to Egypt, and Egypt's going to execute them all. There won't be a single one left. So this is literally going to come to pass. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, God describes Israel as like being a vineyard. That's just a coffee pot. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, that's to protect it. Also made a wine press in it, that's to make wine out of the grapes. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? In other words, where did I fall short? What did I not do? Did God break any of his promises? No, he fulfilled them all. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. The hedge is what protected it from invaders. And it shall be burned. And I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they 
rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help or a wailing. So that's why in Jeremiah, God says, I'm not going to leave a grape on the vine. Let's look at John chapter 15. Where we again see the vine analogy. John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. I may even get inspired to read a little past 8. But we'll start in verse 1 anyway. Brother Wayne. Yes ma'am, Miss Rachel. If God so judges the house of Israel this way. Will he not much more uh, judge the church and thinking that, that they think they've done nothing wrong and they're continuing it to teach and preach that peace, peace, there is no, uh, when there is no peace, it continues to preach the way they are. Will they not be judged more harshly than the house of Israel? I would say just as harshly. And maybe more so, because you're right, to whom much is given, much is required. And we've been given so much more than Israel had. Oh, so much more. It's a good point, Miss Rachel. In John 15, verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I thought Judah was the vine. But where does Messiah come from? Judah. So he is the choicest of the vines, the very best of the vines. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, and it may bear more fruit. Worry about being the branch that bears no fruit, huh? Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. That branch was in the vine and is no longer in the vine and what do you think it means to throw them into the fire is that a hidden or veiled threat no not veiled at all if you abide in me and my words abide in you you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what does he mean by abide in me? It means continue to keep my commandments. And if we look back at John 14, verse 23, just a page before in my Bible, 
Messiah says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the argument that we can throw away God's commandments and just do what Jesus commanded is to not understand who Yeshua is. He is God from all eternity. Okay, back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8, we're up to verse 14. We're going to read 14 through 16. They go together as a group. God just said in verse 13, you're in deep kimchi. Verse 14, it says, why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and has given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. Dan's all the way up in the north of the land of Israel. And we're talking about, we're down here in Judah. That's a long way. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. This is an imagined conversation among the besieged Israelites when Babylon comes. And they suddenly realize that God meant what he said. And that invading army that's coming, is that something they can withstand and repulse? The answer is no. So they begin to realize God really meant it when he said he would judge us. And destruction is really coming. So what should they do? They should repent, but they're going to choose not to. Verse 17, For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. Did God ever send vipers among the children of Israel? Yes, yeah, go back to Numbers 21 and read about it. Numbers 21. How long did it take them to realize that getting a snake bit is not a good thing? Not very long, huh? There was just an article in the L.J. paper. It was in the letters to the editor. A guy saying, God could not have created fangs on snakes because a copperhead bit me and I've really been suffering. And God's a God of love. He wouldn't do that and let people get bitten. Well, let's read Numbers 21 and see. Verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, it's actually the Sea of Reeds, to go around the land of Edom, that's southern Jordan today, down where Petra is. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. They're blaspheming God. How does God react to blasphemy? Not well. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. What are they calling worthless bread? 
manna from heaven, angels' food. So the Lord sent fiery serpents, that means poisonous serpents, among the people. And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So is it beyond God to send fiery serpents when people start blaspheming? No, it's not. Go back to Jeremiah 8. God loves all his children. Yep, your point's well made though, Doc. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. We see so many times God divides people into two categories. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14, it becomes very clear what those categories are. It says, when you see this, that's the Lord comforting Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection, shall be known to his servants. And his indignation, that's his wrath being poured out to his enemies. So which do you want to be? His servant or his enemy? Moses in Deuteronomy 30 said, I set before you today life and death. Choose life. So you get to choose. So back to Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18. The I in verse 18 is Jeremiah. The I in verse 17 is the Lord. So we need to make sure we don't confuse which is which. The Lord is going to send the fiery serpents. In verse 18, Jeremiah says, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. So Jeremiah is mourning for the people, knowing the judgment that's coming. They may say it's not coming, but Jeremiah knows that it is. And he mourns for the people. Verse 19. Verse 19 says, listen. Does that exclamation mark tell you something? It's not a suggestion, is it? Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Meaning what? They're in captivity. How far is Babylon from Israel? A long way if you're walking. Right? long way if you're walking. What's more important is this. God called Avram, later called Abraham, out of where? Ur of the Chaldees. That's Babylon. He called Abraham to come out of Babylon, to come out of the pagan idolatry, to come over to the promised land, to be a new people, to worship the Lord our God and him only. So when his descendants start acting like the Babylonians, God sends them back to Babylon. If you want to go worship the pagan gods, go worship them. And how's that going to work out for them? Not well at all. So that's what he means in verse 19. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion or Zion. Meaning he's not in the far country for them to worship. He's here. 
You left the worship of the Lord to go worship pagan idols. You should have stayed here. Is not her king and herd that is in Jerusalem there? That's where God is king. That's where he rules and reigns. Why do you want to go out to a foreign country to worship pagan gods? Oh, so Jeremiah is just tearing his heart out. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. We got about five minutes. Deuteronomy 32. Verse 21. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, is from the Song of Moses, and it's very prophetic. It says, They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God, referring to the pagan idols. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move them to anger by a foolish nation. That last part... But I'll provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. It's talking about salvation coming to the Gentiles. So that the Gentiles can worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while the Jewish people are not. And that they will bring to the Jewish people a desire to once more worship the true and living God. Go to 1 Kings chapter 14. First Kings chapter 14, verse 9. This prophecy is given to Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, that set up the two golden calves and led the northern kingdom into idolatry. Verse 9 says, But you have done more evil than all who were before you. That is, all the Amorites that God cast out of the land to give it to the children of Israel. He's worse. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. It's not that he's worshiping God and the idols. He doesn't want to worship God. He cast him out. And verse 10 says, therefore behold, which means we're going to the woodshed. But we're going to 1 Kings 21, verse 22. So 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 22. This is to Ahab. Elijah's been, te been preaching repentance in the northern kingdom of Israel, and Ahab is not hearing it. So in verse 22, it says, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashah, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. What did Ahab bring into Israel? Baal. Baal and Ishtar. Because the gods of the northern kingdom were not bad enough. Here comes Baal worship. 2 Kings chapter 21. 
we're just going back to see what leads up to God's finally dropping the hammer on Israel. 2 Kings 21, verse 15. See, Israel thought they could commit the same sins as the Amorites whom God kicked out of the land and that God would tolerate it because they're his people. And they learned that no, God's not a respecter of persons. So we have people like, oh, Andy Stanley of today saying, well, we can live in the sins of, of the past. You got to say to yourself, hmm, how'd that work out for Israel? Not so well, huh? Second Kings chapter 21, verse 15. This is Manasseh. He's even worse than Ahab. So because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. He says that's why they're going to captivity. Because they refuse to repent. They continue the sins of the ancients. Jeremiah 32.30 Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 30. We're almost done. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 30. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth, that is, from their beginning. For the children of Israel provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. They don't want to listen to God. They want to do like the pagan nations do. One last scripture before we close. That's Isaiah chapter 65. Which is about the second coming of the Lord, which is yet future. That's why I want to look at it. We saw in Jeremiah about the people who were not a people. Verse 2 says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. According to their own thoughts, meaning they won't follow my commandments, they do what they want. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my faith, who sacrifice in gardens, that's idolatry, and burn incense and altars of brick, that's idolatry, who sit among the graves, that's uncleanness, and spend the night in the tombs, more uncleanness, who eat swine's flesh, he says, can you believe they're eating piggies? And the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. God is telling us in Isaiah 65 why the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the world here shortly. Because of idolatry, uncleanness, and immorality. Whenever somebody says to you, Wayne, God couldn't possibly care what we eat. Just say, well, ask Adam and Eve.
And with that, we'll close in prayer. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse what? Let's see. Verse 20.